Good morning. We are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Imagine families, friends, gathered for a wedding ceremony. It's autumn, hues of red, yellow, orange. Romance is in the air. As the harpist plays the groom, he stands. He waits. He's never been more handsome, more endearing. And then the bride enters. She's gorgeous. She's stunning. Never has she looked more beautiful. She glides down the aisle to meet her husband-to-be. And for a moment, bride and groom, they embrace. Can't kiss yet, but they give a little hug. And then they turn to the pastor and he reads, Wives, submit to your own husbands. End of romance. (laughs) What? Submit to whom? Why? Although this reaction is maybe a bit exaggerated, the authority implied by any call to submission, it carries some negative connotations in our culture. It suggests power, suggests dominance, maybe for some even oppression. Sometimes it's considered to be synonymous with tyranny. We sometimes picture this domineering figure who makes all of the decisions by himself. He makes decrees. He demands obedience. He intimidates his wife, even suppresses her. In our Western culture, submission is not popular language. No, this is an age of individual freedom. This is an age of liberation for women, not submission. So if we're going to take Ephesians 5 seriously, if we're really going to consider its application to our lives, then we need to ground ourselves in the Scriptures and come to a biblical understanding of submission and authority. In Ephesians 5:22 through chapter 6 verse 9 this is the the context for this passage Paul will offer some guidelines for household relationships he'll talk about husbands and wives he'll talk about parents and their children we'll also talk about masters and servants these household this household orientation It needs to be understood as well within the broader calling to all children of God, all those that are called to follow Jesus. We are all called to imitate God, to to walk in love, to walk with wisdom, to walk in the light of Jesus. And this, of course, the truths of the gospel are to be applied to all of life, to all relationships, and that includes the marriage relationship. This household orientation also needs to be understood within the broader teaching of Jesus and that of the apostles. And it's amazing how Jesus and the apostles treat women with courtesy and with honor in an age when they were treated as less than honorable. For example, in first century Judaism, women were not treated as persons but more like possessions. In the Greek and Roman worlds, The wife, she was there to care for the home, to care for legitimate children, but she submitted to the commands of her husband. She was not understood to have rights. 
There was little room for a faithful marriage. A husband who was faithful to his wife. No, he had the freedom to pursue passionate relationships outside of marriage. And the wife accepted this as the way it was. She was virtually enslaved. No consideration for her rights. So it's in this first century context that Jesus and the the apostles write. What they taught about the truths of the gospel rocked the Jewish, Greek, and Roman worlds. Three foundational truths that were taught by Jesus and the apostles. First, the dignity of women, children, and servants. Second, the equality of all human beings before God. Irrespective of race, rank, class, culture, sex, or age. Men and women equally bear the image of God. They're not identical, but they are equal. They complement one another. And then thirdly, Jesus and the apostles taught the unity of all believers in Christ. Fellow members of Christ's body, they submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as verse 21 says. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about people of all cultures coming together, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slaves and free, old and young, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So thankfully, our Christian faith is of tremendous practical value. All that we learn through the truths of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, it is to be applied in every area of our lives, and that includes the marriage. Ephesians 5, to 33 actually reveals something profound about the mystery of marriage. Marriage communicates something much beyond just a man and a woman coming together. And within this marriage mystery, there's a calling, a very specific calling on women, a specific calling on men, and then there is also a wonderful calling made to both husband and wife. So what are those callings? The main idea of this message is, through their mutual love, God-given roles, and intimate oneness, husband and wife are to reflect the mystery of the relationship between Jesus and his church. Indeed, the mystery of the gospel. So as I said, when a man and a woman come come together, something much more profound is happening than just a man and a woman choosing to be married. Let's read the text. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So just a few more preliminary observations. First of all, you'll see the word as, that little word as, appearing seven times. So there is a model to be patterned after. Husband and wife are to pattern their relationship after the relationship between Christ and his church. Second, there are two times more words for men than for women. Maybe that's hard for us to accept men, but that's the way it is. Six times we're called to love. Three times women are called to submit. And then third, in the context, the verse immediately prior to the text that we read, verse 21, we find a transition verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This verse depends on verse 18, which reads, be filled with the Spirit. So for Paul, the natural outworking of the fullness of the Spirit is an attitude of submission, the act of humbly accepting, yielding to the will or authority of another person. All members of Christ's body are called to submit to one another. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and old, both men and women share this calling in the Spirit. It's not just restricted to women. John Stott writes, when a person is voluntarily amenable amenable to another, gives way to him, and places himself at his service, he shows greater dignity and freedom than an individual who cannot bear to be a helper and partner to anyone but himself. So there's tremendous dignity in submission. Now let's read verse 22 again. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Where does the husband's authority come from? What's it, where, where is it grounded? What's it rooted in? Well, first, the husband's headship is rooted in creation. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he, like Jesus, grounds headship in creation, in Genesis 1 and 2. So the husband's headship is not just the application of some cultural principle. No, it's a foundational principle. John Stott writes, this is not chauvinism, this is creationism. Second, at the heart of that Greek word for submission is the word order. So every time we submit ourselves to another, we are humbly recognizing that there actually is a divine ordering to life. All people have equal dignity before God. All people are created in his image, but people do have different God-appointed roles. And when we submit, we recognize that God is Lord over all things, and he delegates authority to people. John Howard Yoder writes, equality of worth is not identity of role. In other words, equality and role in life are not one and the same. Third, the word head does refer to authority. In Ephesians, in two other texts, Jesus is referred to as the head of the church. 
in chapter 1, verse 22. He is the head not only of the church, but actually of the cosmos. He is head over all things, even evil powers. And this headship of Christ, it serves the church. It's for the benefit of the church. And then in chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus, as head of the body, he nourishes the body. He cherishes it. The body is to grow up into him. And so if headship has meaning in those texts where Jesus is referred to as head, and if the meaning is that Jesus actually has authority and exercises rule for the benefit of the church, then that meaning should be applied as well to marriage. In both instances, headship implies authority and service. The question, of course, is how should this God-given authority be exercised by the husband? We'll come back to this question in a minute. Let's try to answer another question first. What would guide a wife? What would inspire a wife? What would motivate a wife to, to submit to her husband? First, the text says, submit to your own husbands. It doesn't say that women should submit to all men on earth. Women decide to submit to their own husbands. They take the responsibility for that decision. Secondly, wives are to submit as to the Lord. Or as Paul says in verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. And so the wife is to see the Lord behind her husband. When she submits to her husband, she's recognizing the headship of Christ, the authority of God himself. And then third, the example for submission is Jesus himself. The classic text describing the submission of Jesus is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Jesus took on the role of a servant, when he voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father, he offered himself as a gift to secure our salvation through his death on the cross. And he did that out of love. When he did that, he did not become less divine. Jesus did not become less honorable in that moment. He did not become less equal. He chose to submit. Kathy Keller, after meditating on this passage in Philippians, wrote the following, And then I thought, if it was not an assault on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? So when a wife chooses to submit, she does this out of reverence for Christ, for his glory. She voluntarily yields to her husband so that she might radiate the glory of her Savior, Jesus Christ. She reveals the wisdom of the cross. When a woman marries, she responds to a beautiful gospel call, call to wives to submit. 
Be like Jesus. That's the call. Jesus submitted to the Father's headship with a a free, a joyful, an eager submission. Not out of coercion. She wasn't, Jesus wasn't forced. He didn't do it out of a sense of inferiority. He did it acknowledging the Father's headship, and he did it out of reverence. He did it out of love. There was no hint of inequality, of ability, or dignity. Father and Son complimented one another for our salvation. And then fourth, when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we also read the following. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. We as the bride of Christ, as the church of Christ, we submit to Christ's authority and we do that out of a relationship of love and reverence for Jesus, knowing that Christ's authority over us as his church, it benefits us. And in the same way, a wife submits to her husband, realizing that the authority, the husband, sorry, the authority granted to her husband, it is for her blessing, it is for her benefit. Now let's return to that earlier question. How should a husband exercise that God-given authority? What does that look like? Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As as I've already said, men are called to love their wives six times in this passage. That is the word characterizing their headship. It's the way that husbands imitate God by loving. Paul uses two analogies to describe this love. First, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Already in the Old Testament, God, the covenant God, the covenant-making God, he talks about his relationship with the people of Israel as being a marriage covenant. Jesus applies this language to himself and says that he is the bridegroom. What does the love of the heavenly bridegroom look like? Well, it's deep. It's sacrificial. It's committed. It's steadfast love. That's what husbands are to imitate. As Christ loved the church, you see, These words, they point back to eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when Jesus set his eyes on his bride, us, and he's determined to come and save us. He gave himself up for her, the text says. It obviously refers to Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. You see, the book on headship, it is centered in the cross. Husbands are not only to love their wives with that romantic, sentimental love on a wedding day or on a honeymoon, but husbands are called to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. We are called to give ourselves up for our wives, out of love for them. And so we follow Jesus with a deep, committed, sacrificial love, the highest standard of love conceivable is placed before us. 
Why does Jesus give his life for his bride? Well, look at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. You see, Christ has as a purpose to set apart his bride, to present her to himself in splendor. These words they have as their background, Ezekiel chapter 16, where the Lord washes infant Israel, raises her, adorns her. He cares for her. He he elevates her to royalty. He sees her in splendor and then marries her. That's the background. You see, Christ, he washed us, his bride, of our sins. When we heard the call of the gospel, the word of the gospel, that word from Jesus, I love you, we repented. We turned to him. We believed in him. We entrusted our lives to him. We walk down the aisle to embrace the covenant love of Jesus now and forever. And it's that kind of love, that kind of union which is to be reflected in marriage. Christ offers his love in verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's really interesting here that the bride doesn't make herself presentable for the bridegroom. It's the bridegroom who is working to beautify her to present her to himself. The bridegroom, he he binds himself to his bride. He vows to bring the church to himself in love. That's his purpose. That's his passion, to present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor at the marriage supper. That's his goal. The bride might be there radiating the glory of God forever. Her beauty is really important to him. As I've reflected on this text this week, I've asked myself as a husband, do I live with this kind of purpose and passion? (laughs) Do I live with this kind of purpose to see my wife in splendor before the Father, in glory, radiating God's glory? Or do I ask my wife to beautify herself for my glory? On earth, the bride of Christ is often in rags and tatters, sometimes stained, often persecuted. Next weekend, we will remember the International Day for the Persecuted Church. The church suffers, but there is a day coming when the bride will be presented to Jesus in splendor, immaculate, matchless, exquisite. We have a wonderful picture of this in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Are we ready to be there? Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that we live toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. If we have given our hearts to Jesus, then we live for that day. Christ's love and self-sacrifice for his bride, his washing and sanctifying of her, they're all for the liberation, the perfection of the bride so that he might present herself to himself in glory. In this way, the husband is to walk in a manner worthy of his calling. This is the way that he lives out the gospel in the marriage relationship. This is the way that he is to exercise his authority, loving his wife, laying down his, wife, his life for his wife, so that she might walk in the fullness of God's glory in his presence. These are the implications of Christ's headship. The bridegroom of the church, Jesus, he does not crush his bride. He does not infuriate his bride. He does not frustrate his bride. He loves her. He gives himself up so that she'll be completely herself in God. So when a man chooses to marry, he responds to a beautiful gospel call to husbands, to love, to be like Jesus. First and foremost, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then in verse 28, Paul says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. It appears that Paul descends here to a lesser kind of love, a love for oneself, love your neighbors yourself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But he actually does this to make a very, very profound point. Paul says, take care of your wife the way that you would take care of yourself because you and your wife, you are now one body. Christ loves his own body, the bride, because he's one with her. It's a profound union. It's a dissoluble union. It is a union for now and forever. As head of the church, he nourishes the church. He cherishes it. He cares for it with a tender love. And husbands are to love their wives in this way. They're now one. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I, we attended our second daughter's wedding. And uh, she married a French-Canadian. We are bringing Canada together to be one. (laughs) But it was a wonderful moment, a beautiful wedding ceremony. What a joy to see my daughter marrying a wonderful young man, becoming one. Every time that happens in human history, when a man and a woman come together, God's intent is that the oneness between Christ and his body be reflected, radiated, that it be an image of the union that exists between Christ and his church. You see, the command to love as his own body, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's way back there in creation, and it's recited in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 31, it talks about a leaving, which means a breaking of former ties, a forsaking of all others. 
It also talks about a, a bonding, a joining to, the formation of a new relationship. According to the created order, man was created male and female, and the husband and wife came together to be one. This happened before the fall. Physically, emotionally, spiritually one. Verse 31, reciting Genesis 2.24, is the most profound, fundamental statement in all of Scripture regarding marriage. And both Jesus and Paul go back to it. When a man and a woman marry, they respond to a profound, beautiful gospel call to couples. Oneness. Oneness. What is the profound mystery being revealed by God through marriage? Well, Marriage unveils the mystery of the gospel. As the wife submits to her husband, she reflects the submission of Christ to the Father. She reflects the submission of the church to Christ. As the husband models his life after Christ, he loves his wife as Christ loved the church. He cares for his wife as Christ cares for the church. He nourishes and cherishes his wife as Christ nourishes and cherishes his wife. He models his headship after the headship of Christ. He serves his wife. He exercises his authority with love. As husband and wife come together in marriage, they reveal the oneness between Christ and the church. They remind us that one day Christ the bridegroom will return for his bride, the church, and all things will be united in Christ. You see, there's so much more going on in a Christian marriage than just a man and a woman coming together. From the beginning of creation, man was created male and female. Marriage was created by God, not by us. It was created by God for oneness. The oneness of a man and woman and man and woman were to reflect the oneness that would exist forever between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage was created to unveil the mystery of the gospel. So our marriages are filled with profound meaning. Now, do we live in a manner worthy of our calling? That is the challenge for us as husbands and wives. It's the challenge for men and women that consider marriage. Are we willing to live the profound mystery of the gospel? Are we willing to live in a manner worthy of this high calling that Jesus has granted to us? And then there's a word for all. Consider the message of the gospel unveiled through marriage. If you have never given your heart to Jesus, consider the message. Jesus, the bridegroom, he came from heaven out of love. Submitting to the will of the Father, he gave his life for us so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be washed, so that we might be forgiven. He gave his life. He took our sin upon himself, died for us. Died for us out of love so that we might be his bride presented to him in splendor. He invites all of us to the ultimate, the eternal romance of heaven. 
He invites us to the marriage supper of of the Lamb. He cries out, come. You see, there's a gospel call, a beautiful gospel call to all people to come. In Revelation 19.9, we read, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 22.17, we read, the Spirit and the bride say, come. So it's the Holy Spirit and the bride of Christ, the church, calling Jesus to come, to return. And let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Jesus offers life. The bridegroom invites all who are thirsty to come to the marriage supper that he is preparing for his bride. And that, my friends, will be the most wonderful wedding party ever. And so are you thirsty? And if you are, then Jesus says, I have always loved you. I love you. Please come. Accept my invitation to know me, to love me, to experience my love for you that we might walk in oneness now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for creating us in your image, male and female. Thank you for your calling over our lives. Thank you for the joy of knowing you, for the presence of your Holy Spirit within us. And Lord, we recognize that often we fall so short of our calling. As your disciples, as your followers, we fall short. As husbands and wives, we so often fail to reflect what you have called us to reflect. We fail in the area of submission. We fail in the area of love. So often we are focused on ourselves and we forget, Lord, what you have called us to. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to live up to your calling. Thank you that you are present in our lives to lead us forward, to teach us, to guide us, to grant us strength, strength for husbands to love, Lord, the way that you loved your church, strength for women to submit in the way that you, Jesus, submitted to your Father. And so we ask that you empower us, strengthen us, help us. I pray that each marriage represented here would be strengthened by your Holy Spirit. I pray for love where there is a lack of love. I pray for a submission to your will where there is a resistance to your will. I pray for a oneness that only you, Lord, could bring. And may this be, Lord, for your glory. And I pray for those that may not have surrendered their lives to you, Lord, here this morning. And I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be at work in their hearts in this moment. And I invite those of you that are not followers of Jesus to pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for 
coming to earth. Thank you for revealing the Father. Thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for taking my sin upon yourself. Thank you for paying the price for my salvation. Thank you for the invitation to know you, to live with you forever. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to live within me. I open my heart to you. Jesus, I want to live for you and for your glory, and I pray that you would teach me what it means to follow you today and for the rest of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I'd invite you to go back to the Welcome Center or come talk to me. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.